Well, brethren, if you would take a copy of the Scripture and turn with me to Psalm 12, 452 in your pew Bible, 452. As we continue our study of these Psalms of conflict in Book 1 of the Psalter, we remain in a great deal of conflict. And let's ask the Lord to help us understand His Word. Gracious Father, we pray for the outpouring of Your Spirit even right now to teach us the truth to guide us into the truth, that we might understand who You are and what You require of us, that we would live a life of faith in response to Your goodness to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll hear now the word of the Lord to the choir master, according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Thus far, God's holy word, and may He bless it to us. In January 2013, the most dominant athlete of the day, a guy who had beaten cancer, aggressive, life-threatening cancer, who was called the male athlete of the year, a record-breaking four times, that's even more than Michael Jordan, for those who know him, A guy who won arguably the toughest sporting event in the world, the grueling Tour de France. Not once, not twice, not three times, but seven times. This guy, Lance Armstrong, he sat down with Oprah and he finally admitted what he had been denying for over a decade, that he cheated. He used steroids. He had told in his words over 10,000 lies. Now, by this point, a federal investigation had already revealed that Lance was a liar. He had already been stripped of all of his victories and an Olympic medal. But only now that he had lost everything and his lies proved fruitless, did he admit his guilt. Guilt for doping that had started over 15 years earlier. Armstrong lives in infamy with baseball players of the steroid era like Bonds, McGuire, and Sosa, or Pete Rose, the compulsive gambler who lied constantly. Indeed, isn't there a sense in which wherever we look in sports, college athletics, paying players when you weren't supposed to pay players, the 1985 SMU football team comes to mind, Michigan's Fab Five if you're a child of the early 90s. Or track and field, maybe you remember that race, I do, 1988, Canadian Ben Johnson 
beats Carl Lewis in the 100 meters, only he was using steroids. And then there's professional football, the American variety. Sorry for The Patriots with Skygate and Deflategate. And if you don't know what those are, it doesn't matter. They were cheats and liars. Brethren, what does all of this tell us? We live in a world of liars. And that's not even to think about politicians or big pharma companies or promoters of various products in the marketplace. The world is full of flatterers, boasters, prideful spin doctors who think they can get away with their deceit. Well, we can't be sure when this psalm was written in David's life, but he acutely felt the sting of liars everywhere. Maybe it was during Absalom's coup. A vast deception was worked, reaching all the way up to David's own friends. But whatever the case, David is struck by the evil that surrounds him. In a sea of sleaze, where words are cheap, and as verse 7 puts it, vileness is exalted. What is the godly person to do? Well, in a world of trouble, David seeks the Lord for deliverance. Indeed, he counts on Yahweh to intervene, to bring judgment, to speak truth, to keep those who trust in Him while sin abounds. Because David understands he's in a spiritual war. Brother, so are we. Our circumstances are different than David's, but the hearts of men have not changed. Lying is pervasive. Vileness is exalted. So we too, like David here, need the Lord. Let's see how David wrestles with surrounding wickedness. And let's note three things in Psalm 12. We begin with a plea for deliverance in verses 1-4. to A plea for deliverance. Now the first word of the psalm proper that's after the introduction or superscription, and by the way, that stuff about the choir master and the tune and of David is in the Hebrew text. It's part of the Bible. You may have no idea what a Shemineth is, but it's still authoritative to us. Don't forget that. But as the psalm formally begins, the first word is simple. Save. Now, you know the situation feels pretty desperate when the first thing you say is, help me. This last week in the news, there was a little girl who wrote a note on a piece of paper and showed it. Help me. And it was a way she was rescued from horrible sexual abuse. Help me. That's all you have time to say. The situation is so desperate. Rescue me. Come near to me. That's what David is praying. And yet he's praying this prayer to Yahweh. Save, O Yahweh. In a world of liars, there is one who is faithful. It's Yahweh, the name that God gave Moses as a God who keeps His Word. He is the sovereign, eternal, unchangeable, covenant-keeping, with-you God. And therefore, David comes to this immutable king who rules over all, and he entrusts himself to Yahweh's mighty hand. Brethren, who we turn to when we're in trouble says a lot about us. Do we turn to ourselves, to our clever solutions, to our money? Do we turn to men? That is, do we trust in other people to get us out of a fix? Do we escape to new environments? Or do we run to the presence of the Lord and give Him our troubles? That's what the God we do. In their afflictions, even in the darkest of dark moments, they are found praying, committing their situation to God. Isn't that what Jesus Himself does? 
Jesus is about to be surrounded by an angry mob with no mercy who will seize him, condemn him, spit on him, strike him, and then hand him over to those who will crucify him. And of course, that's not the darkest part because he will face the wrath of God as our substitute. But with the dark clouds building, what does Jesus do? He prays. So simple, isn't it? He prays. Hebrews 5-7, with loud cries and tears, Jesus made supplication to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His piety. Jesus also prayed, Save, O Lord! Now, not every psalm in the Psalter is a psalm of affliction or a lament. A number of psalms are hymns of praise, declarations of God's great works of creation and providence or salvation. But in the psalms, dripping with difficulty, something like about 75 of them, there is a theme of perpetual prayer to the Lord in affliction. Yes, it's a repeated theme. However, I submit to you that we need never hearing of the faith-filled duty to go to the Lord in our troubles, to take our emergencies to our exalted and loving King and rest in Him. And brethren, is this our pattern? Can you say that you're a person of prayer and you've trained yourself in the habit of running to the presence of God? It's an impulse of the soul to go to the Lord when trouble comes. You're in a fallen world. You're going to face trouble. Or are you facing it with prayer? Now as David begins his plea for deliverance, notice he details the situation. And he starts with a striking absence. Look again at verse 1. Save Yahweh, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Now, of course, we know David doesn't mean that he's the only godly person on the planet, that every faithful person without exception has vanished. However, in the moment, it seems that way. The multiplication of evil around him is so great, it seems to him that all the covenant keepers are gone. And what happens when the salt of the earth, the preserving influence of believers, are gone? Well, the same thing that happens when no salt is available to preserve meat. The meat putrefies. Only in this case, it's society that's rotting. Indeed, David describes what he sees. Verse 2, everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and double heart they speak. And notice how the focus here on sin, the evidence of rotten hearts, is rotten speech. Literally, David says, verse 2, emptiness or vanity they speak, each man with his friend. In other words, men's words mean nothing. Their words carry no substance. There's no truth behind them. No sincerity, no loyalty. They say whatever they need to get what they want. And this is a pervasive problem. Each man, David is saying, is like this. Society is made up of people with a double heart. That is, they speak like they have two hearts. One to flatter you, and one to seek your destruction. Well, clearly David is saying, everyone is filled with hypocrisy. And if this is the situation when Absalom, David's son, rebelled, Absalom showed this kind of double-hearted speech. 
2 Samuel 15, Absalom would show up at the city gate where cases were adjudicated. And he would say things like, there's no one to hear your case, to truly understand your situation, though I tell you, your claims are good and right. But if I was king, oh, I would listen to you and I would give you the justice you deserve. And he did this and stole the hearts of Israel. He was manipulative. He was full of smooth talk. But he didn't care about the people. It was a ploy to destroy David and to put himself on the throne. And as it goes with compulsive liars and flatterers, you say so many things, you promise so much, that you can't even keep up with your own lies. That pervasive deception gets to a point where you can't even trust yourself because you have no truth to unite your heart. And as Absalom act like this, he stirred a host of like-minded deceivers and flatterers in high places among the populace of Israel. The situation is so distressing to David who will be forced to flee from Absalom and who will grieve greatly over Ahithophel, his friend betraying him. It's so bad David prays. Verse 3, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great bows. Verse 4, Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? David sees that these pompous windbags make great pronouncements of their rising power. They think they can talk themselves into greatness and that nobody's going to stop them. They think their words can win people over and establish lasting prominence. But of course, brethren, lying and making great boasts are hallmarks of the devil. And these are evidences of opposition to God, of the worship of self. So David, who knows that Yahweh desires truth in the inward being, Psalm 51.6, who knows that Yahweh brings down the haughty, Psalm 18.27, who knows that the boastful shall not stand, for Yahweh hates all evildoers, Psalm 5.5, David prays that the Lord would bring His judgment. He's crying out, deliver me from these sinful people, this sinful society with their smooth talking lies. Rescue me from a world where godliness appears to be missing. Save me, O God, from men who care nothing about the truth. I wonder, is that a prayer that resonates with our souls tonight? What kind of society do we have? Well, we have liars for politicians. In the present administration, we hear lies about border security, lies about the economy, lies about foreign policy, from things like leaving Afghanistan to whatever involvement we do have in Ukraine and in the Russia conflict. We hear lies from health officials. They lie about viruses. They lie about the effectiveness of vaccines. They lie about what defines a man and a woman. They lie about the devastating consequences of gender replacement surgery. We have liars for advertisers. I don't know if you know this, an incredibly famous example is the 1930s widespread claim that cigarettes were good for your health. I'm not making this up. And when people started to notice, you know, cigarettes seem to cause coughing and throat irritation. Lucky Strike Cigarettes came out with the ad that said this. 20,679 physicians say luckies are less irritating to the throat. Or how about a 
closer to home example. Early 21st century, about 2012, Nutella, you know that hazel chocolate spread that you can put on your bread in the morning? They had an advertisement that it's a nutritious part of a child's daily needs. A kid's breakfast is nutritionally, nutritionally helped by eating Nutella. You know better that a candy bar smeared on your bread is probably not healthy. Well, a woman claimed to be duped by this. Uh, her name is Mrs. Hogenberg. And she sued Nutella. And they settled with her for $3 million. And if you bought Nutella between January 1st, 2005 and February 3rd, 2012, you could get as much as $20. Brethren, we have hucksters in the church. You see, it's even worse. The lies only continue. We have people in the church who will tell you you're healed if you just pass along your credit card information. We have those in the Roman Catholic Church from the Pope to the Vatican down to local bishops who have lied about sexual abuse. And the SBC has been devastated by the same kinds of claims, lying about sexual abuse. We have a so-called pastor in Houston pitching a relationship between health and faith and offering your best life now. That lying has even infiltrated our own denomination. Getting really personal here. There are those in the PCA who are saying and have been saying for years that the gospel of Jesus has nothing to do with holiness. I have seen this with my own eyes written down on a piece of paper to teach youth. Anyone who talks of holiness is a legalist. Never mind Hebrews 12 that says without holiness no one will see the Lord. Or 1 Peter 1, be holy because I the Lord your God am holy. We have those in our own denomination claiming that the gospel of Christ frees you but doesn't change you. So if you're same-sex attracted, for instance, you're just stuck in that sin forever. And then we've had an entire secret society in our own denomination talking about grace and love and unity while they slandered men, pastors in their private emails, and attempted to manipulate the church courts and exercise abusive leadership in their churches. You know, it's one thing to see lies wrecking society. It's a whole different thing to see lies in the people of God. But David is looking around at his fellow Israelites, and he's saying they're all a bunch of liars. There are liars who claim to have a commitment to Yahweh. But Yahweh, you know the truth. And brethren, David is yearning for judgment. Not because he delights in the death of the wicked. He is yearning for judgment because he wants to be in a place where truth reigns, where the godly are guarded, where there's zero demonic influence. And is that the longing that you have? Does deception abhor you? Does hypocrisy in the church turn your stomach? Are you resolved on the one hand not to be double-minded, not to align yourself with devilish deeds? Revelation 21.8, where do liars go? To the lake of fire. Are you resolved not to be a liar? But on the other hand, are you resolved to pray for the world to come, a world where truth and love will prevail? The prophet Zephaniah speaks of a day when God's people will do no injustice and speak no lies. 
Do you yearn for that? We'll pray, save, O Lord, or come, Lord Jesus, or let Your kingdom come. And until that day comes, brethren, let us keep praying to God and asking for faithfulness to live in this difficult world. See, secondly with me, a promise of intervention. Hearing David's cry, David now gives, or David receives, that is, an assuring word of God's help. Verse 5, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. Note the first person declaration here. I will arise, Yahweh is saying. Now, what is it in David's world that moves Yahweh to action? What is his pity for a suffering people? The poor, that's not necessarily the economic poor, the sense is the afflicted. The afflicted are plundered. Those in socially inferior positions are being wounded. Could be that physical violence is upon them. It could be that social havoc is being reaped because of this pervasive society of liars. Again, remember the situation with Absalom. He temporarily overthrew Jerusalem. He brought war on the nation. Consider the societal impact of that kind of mutiny. The way his coup would take from the people, steal their resources to supply his army, and then march through their towns with destruction as he pursued David. Well, Yahweh sees when the afflicted are attacked, and He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Psalm 9, verse 12. Or the poor, it's the same word. He doesn't forget the cry of the afflicted. Yahweh is not blind to injustices committed against those who are weak and deprived who look to Him. And not only does He see, brethren, He hears. Yahweh also says, verse 5, because the needy groan, I will now arise. Maybe you remember Exodus chapter 2 when Pharaoh was bringing his infanticide destruction on Israel, having Hebrew boys thrown in the Nile. And then we further read of Israelites in slavery. And at that time, God's people cried out and their cry came up before God. And Moses writes these words, Exodus 2.24, And God heard their groaning and remembered His covenant. What a comfort that statement is. The Lord pays attention to our groans, our tears, our weeping hearts. Our God is not cold and uncaring. He eyes us with compassion. And when His people suffer, when they're pleading for His help, He listens. Now His rising up to defend us, that might not happen on your timetable. How long was it from the people groaning, Exodus 2, to God bringing the deliverance in Exodus 3 as He sends Moses? He appears at the burning bush. It's about 40 years. But Yahweh heard and Yahweh arose. In like manner here, the judgment David seeks is one in which Yahweh is hearing and Yahweh is seeing, Yahweh is taking action, and Yahweh is executing judgment. It's like the, alt, the, uh, the martyrs under the altar in Revelation 6. How long, O Lord, sovereign and true, until You avenge our blood? And yet they're assured that He will see and act. Now, it's not going to happen right at that moment. In verses 7 and 8, David anticipates an ongoing situation of danger. Therefore, this declaration of Yahweh's intervention is not to be viewed as immediate. Nevertheless, what truth is God communicating here? He's telling David, I haven't changed. I'm the same God of the Exodus who saw oppression and heard groaning. I'm still listening to you and I will come to save. And beloved, I tell you tonight, our God still hasn't changed. 
He still sees, He still hears, He looks upon us with compassion, and He will help us. In this case, what does the help look like? David is told, I will place him, the afflicted sufferer, this needy who groans, in the safety for which he longs. What's the safety for which the godly longs? Surely it's not temporal blessing, a a temporal hideout like a cave where you can go and be safe for a little while. The safety for which we long is the shadow of the Almighty. The very presence of God is being with Him and totally free from the assaults of the wicked. But here, the assurance is, if you're afflicted and you groan to God, God will bring Himself to you. God will draw you near. He will shepherd you to His heavenly courts. He will ensure that the godly dwells in safety like a sheep who lies down with nothing to make Him afraid. But how can we really know that that's the truth? How do we know total safety is in the future of the godly? Well, look at verse 6. Now, before I read the verse, Ralph Davis puts it about this verse. It's an assurance about that assurance. It's an assurance of an assurance. In stark contrast with the lying words of the world, we have the assurance that God's Word is true. Verse 6, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. God's words are free from all corruptions. There is no smooth talk to deceive. There are no equivocations, no slight exaggerations, no promises with a limited warranty, no expiration date on the promises of God. God's words are pure like silver with no corruption, like metal that has been hardened and strengthened in the fire and resulting in a better blade. Now, we know that God never lies. He can never be proven a liar. There is no darkness in Him at all. Numbers 23.19 God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should change His mind. For God to even have the slightest deception in His character, it would invalidate His holiness. And His words are reflective of who He is. He is pure. He's holy, holy, holy. He's completely perfect and without the possibility of improvement. Nevertheless, though God is this way already, He's flawless. And His words are flawless. Do you see how God is stooping to give us an analogy of His own words going through a purification process? Do God's words need to be purified of impurities? No, they don't. This is a condescension to us. In the smelting fire of the metal worker, He is making a perfect blade by getting rid of the dross. Well, in like manner, God is saying, I'll stoop to your level and I'll explain this to you. My word is like, a, like silver refined. How, how refined are we talking about, Lord? Well, seven times. Now, we all remember the significance of the number seven, don't we? What does it mean? Completeness, perfection. So God's words are words that have been completely purified. In actuality, there was never any flaw in them already. But the analogy is to reinforce the totality of their purification. Brethren, there is no stain, no corruption, nothing unclean about God's words at all. And what does that mean for David and what does it mean for us? It means that God's words are incapable of failing. His promises will never be proven false. Our hope of deliverance from liars 
will be realized. Our longing for safety will be satisfied. The Lord will, as Asaph puts it in Psalm 73, hold us by the hand, lead us with His counsel, and afterward receive us into glory. Or Psalm 23, 6. David says, Surely goodness and mercy or steadfast love shall pursue me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How does he know that's true? Because the Word of God cannot fail. And do you understand tonight that we on this side of the cross have an even greater perspective than David on how true this is? How do we know? Because God was willing to send His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to condemn sin in Him so that Jesus might be the proof that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Him. So tonight, if you're a soul leaning on the Word of Christ, you have, as we sang to start, a firm foundation. Jesus says that the one who hears His words and does them that is, who relies on His words, that one has built his house on a rock. And the winds will come and the waves will slam against the house, but the house will stand. Why? Because it's built on the rock. Christ and His Word. Well, what assurance can we have, dear people, of a future without trouble, of a, of a future peace with the Lord, a future free of this world of curse and its adherence to the devil? Our hopes are not put in men who are liars. Our hopes are in God who has never failed once. We rest on the firmness of His Word. And that leads me to a very practical application for us. Is the Word of Christ dwelling richly in your heart? Are you taking what is sure and true and storing it up in you? Or let me get more specific. Are you memorizing the promises of God. So that when your lying heart assaults you, and when the devil comes to accuse you, or when the world tries to seduce you, you have the unfailing words of truth to speak to the lies. Brethren, God's words must be treasured. We have to lodge them in our souls so that we can fight against unbelief. We can ward off the smooth talk of the devil. And then we can keep our focus on our glorious future. And if you haven't memorized the promises of God, start now and load your heart with the truth. Finally, see with me. A pledge while the wicked prowl. Verses 7 and 8. On the previous section, our eyes were set on the future freedom of deliverance from evil men, from liars. But in 7 and 8, we return to the difficulties of this world. And here we have a striking contrast. It seems... In response to God's promises, David exercises his faith on the pure Word of God. And he declares, verse 7, You, O Yahweh, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. Because David is sure, due to God's promise, that Yahweh will arise and give safety, he asserts the truth that the Lord will keep His people. Psalm 121, I hope you're familiar with it. My eyes are lifted up to the hills to see from whence my help comes. That psalm is the keeping psalm. The Lord will keep you. He won't let your feet be moved. He will not slumber. He will keep Israel. The Lord is your keeper. Five times the verb is used to keep, to stress. 
Yahweh will never fail to keep us. That's what he's saying here. And then there's a parallel idea that God guards us like a watchman. He's always vigilant to protect. And His guardian character assures us that believers, verse 7, will be kept from this generation forever. This generation is talking about the present society composed of liars who flatter and boast and seek to dominate the lowly. But David is saying, no, they will not prevail. Yahweh will not permit evil to swallow up the righteous. However, this declaration of guarding power comes in the face of an ugly world. Verse 8, on every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. The ESV is taking a little liberty with the translation prowl. The language literally is that the wicked walk to and fro. Now this could be like the strutting action of a cat proudly displaying its skill in asserting its power. Or it could be hunting action to snare prey. The ESV takes the latter image. But that prowling activity certainly depicts the deception all throughout the psalm. Prowling captures the hearts of evil men to deceive and dominate. And of course, what animals in the Bible are said to prowl? Dogs, jackals, and lions. And the devil himself is described as a lion who prowls seeking to devour. And yet while he seeks to wreak havoc and is indeed wreaking havoc, look at verse 8, vileness is exalted among the children of man. It's a description of David's time. But isn't that description relevant? Evil is everywhere. Proud boasters are looking to hoodwink others and exalt themselves. And they are promoting shameful excess. Don't we see that in our culture? Violence is all over the television. Vileness is all over the music world. All over the sports world. Vileness is exalted among political leaders with their drug supplying, pornography promoting, drag queen supporting, and marriage despising ways. There seems to be no shame in the larger culture. And that shame spills over into those who would call themselves Christians. However, the truth is, these people are deceivers. They flaunt evil. Or as Jude puts it, they turn the grace of God into licentiousness. And as they do so, they are a threat. Satan seeks to make what is scandalous look satisfying. He portrays vileness as some type of victorious living, a high life, a path of pleasure with fun and no consequences. That picture is tempting. And there's a danger for us, beloved. We need to see, as John will declare in the Revelation, that the world is Babylon, a great prostitute. There's a mirage of beauty while she drinks the blood of the saints. It's a disgusting image but it's an image to make an impression. Flee Babylon. Flee the world. Flee this vileness that characterizes the children of man. But as we swim in the waters filled with filth, how can we be sure we won't drown? David is not ending on a high note. He's saying, look, Lord, vileness is everywhere. And yet he's hanging on to one truth. You guard us. Brethren, this is the tension in which we live, isn't it? 
a life that seeks to be godly amidst a godless world, and a life where there is much trouble. Yet, what do we cling to in the midst of the trouble? The pure words of the living God, rather than the false words of this world. And we keep hanging on until our guarding Savior comes to save us. Beloved, will you hang on? Will you rest your soul in the Word of the Lord? Will you set your anchor, as it were, on what is unfailing, God's promise? And will you root your heart in the truth so that in the midst of liars, you won't find your own soul destroyed? May we learn indeed how to speak truth to the lie and how to cry out to Christ to come and save us. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we recognize that Your means to preserve us in an evil society is Your Word. And Lord, as we see the depravity of man in David's day and fast forward 3,000 years to our own, we pray, O Lord, that we remember that You haven't changed in all that time. That You remain a faithful God who will guard Your people. So Lord, let us not despair but rather let us trust You. Indeed, O Father, we pray that we would be bold and take Your Word and press it to our own souls. Make us like Mary, the mother of Jesus, who treasured up Your truths and promises within her heart. Indeed, O Lord, may we hide Your Word in our heart that we would not sin against You. Hear us as we pray this, O Father, and enable us by Your grace even to speak the truth of the Word to one another that we would set our eyes not on this present city, which is the city of destruction, but on that great city to come, that better country. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.